welcome to Michael and Us. I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... Luke Savage, welcome back everyone. Broadcasting to you tonight from beautiful Kitchener, Ontario. A place for lovers. Uh, Anyway, uh, mere minutes before we started recording, I saw some exciting news about a possible movie that we could talk about in the future. We often talk on this podcast about how film is a powerful medium to hold the powerful accountable and to inspire social change. Well, there's a new film coming out called My Son Hunter. This came into my field of vision because it stars Gina Carano, who, if you are a spectator of the culture war, you'll know that she was, I think, the lady who was on The Mandalorian who got fired uh, because of... Uh, I've got her Wikipedia page in front of me, and it's it's all the things you would expect, you you know, mask stuff, voter fraud stuff, Black Lives Matter stuff. Anyway, she's now co-starring in this film, My Son Hunter. Presumably in an effort to rebuild her rapport with the liberal community. (laughs) (laughs) Well, uh, would you believe that the film is not in favor of Hunter? Uh, According to the film's producers, she is a world-weary Secret Service agent present at most of the Biden family's dodgy dealings. She provides a voice of truth and sardonic comedy over the absurd dealings of the Biden family and various Chinese, Russian, and Ukrainian oligarchs. The Daily Mail has a bunch of pictures from the set that it looks like if anyone has seen the Abel Ferreira movie, Welcome to New York, it looks like a right wing version of that. It's just nonstop orgy and party scenes, it seems like. (laughs) Uh, I mean, honestly, it, it might make Hunter look pretty cool. But the reason I bring this up ultimately is all the articles about this movie bury the lead. It's going to be directed by Robert Davi. If folks don't know who Robert Davi is, he is one of the funniest right-wing celebrities. He was a villain in one of the James Bond movies, Licensed to Kill. I think that's kind of kind of how he became famous, sort of. That he, he parlayed that into a long, prolific direct-to-video career playing villains. And in the Trump era, he emerged as one of the greatest practitioners of the driving in an SUV and yelling into your cell phone video. Y- you know that style. I'm sick and tired of the nonsense. I'm sick and tired of sitting on my hands, afraid to speak because I may be blacklisted from Hollywood. I'm sick and tired of it all. Aren't you? I see those statues come down. My grandparents came from Italy. All right, you sons of bitches. Anyway, I'm looking forward to my son, Hunter. It looks like an excellent match of subject matter and auteur. My real hope is that (laughs) Joe Biden is actually no longer president when it is released. I don't know that much about the film beyond what you've told me, but I, I assume the purpose of it is to try to force the Hunter Biden stuff out into the open a bit. Because if you've consumed right-wing media over the past two years, they're all over Hunter Biden stuff. They're talking about it constantly. But there's been an almost total freeze out of it in kind of the mainstream and in the liberal media for obvious reasons. So I assume this uh, film is an effort to, you know, as every single piece of right-wing culture is, to trigger the libs. And I assume the intention is to get it out while Joe Biden is still president so that it's, you know, damaging. Yeah, and and that's the thing. Like, I'm hoping it's just a little bit too late. I think that would make it really funny. 
<laughs> Things are touch and go with the Biden presidency right now. Who who knows what could happen? Well, speaking of which, I don't know if you saw this story in the Washington Post last weekend. The headline was Harris and Buttigieg under the spotlight amid uncertainty over Biden's future. Um, so I'm not going to I'm not going to bother to read it. I think a lot of people will have seen it. But the crux of the piece is that, you know, it's not clear whether Biden is going to run for a second term. Uh, of course, even if he does, uh, the Democrats will need a, a you know presidential contender in 2028. And apparently, the consensus within uh, you know senior Democratic circles is that uh, you know the sitting Vice President Kamala Harris and uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg are the two figures who represent uh, the future of the Democratic Party, which is just an absolutely incredible statement about the mindset which prevails in quote-unquote democratic circles. Now, I had the opportunity recently, um, I don't know why I'm calling it an opportunity, but uh, the- The privilege. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's a better word. The privilege of watching uh, Amazon's new Mayor Pete documentary, which is just called Mayor Pete. And, you know, it's it's a terrible film, but it is it is kind of incredible. I mean, I'm not sure how you how much you know about the film, but it's done in this kind of cinema verite style. So there's no, you know, voiceover, there's no editorializing, anything like that. Although, of course, the editorializing and, you know, the kind of film's thesis is all implicit in, you know, the talking head interviews that it uses and in the footage that the, the filmmakers chooses to show you. But the film runs just over 90 minutes. And I swear to God, there is not a single scene in which Pete Buttigieg discusses any actual reason why he wants to be president or why he should be president. Just the vaguest platitudes about how he represents something different. You know, there's a scene where uh, Bill Maher is asking him why he's surging in the polls. I assume this was kind of towards the end of 2019. And he says, well, I think one reason is that uh, people want something different. And it's never clear what the something different is. The whole film, uh, just like Pete Buttigieg's political arc over the past few years, really attempts this sort of, you know, ethereal version of Mr. Smith goes to Washington. A little clue as to our film this week, by the way, where, you know, Pete is set up as this as this outsider. He's an unorthodox candidate. He's would you believe it, folks? He's not a very traditional politician. Pete is a details guy. He's a wonk guy. He likes to spend his time immersed in the granular details of policy. He doesn't like talking about his private life, um, or so the movie claims. And then it proceeds to spend about, you know, uh, 90 minutes showing us, you know, Pete kind of bearing his soul. And, you know, we're constantly reminded that he's, you know, a details and a policy guy, but we never actually hear him talk about those things. Like being interested in details and policy is just another attribute to add to all of his, you know, uh, veteran check, Episcopalian check, you know, et cetera, et cetera. All in all, the whole thing is a remarkable effort to portray a thorough conventional democratic politician as some kind of outsider who engaged in this you know heroic sort of moonshot presidential campaign to disrupt the state order in Washington now I'm not going to talk too much about this movie because uh, on our patreon I think sometime next week we're going to be hosting a conversation between myself and Josh Olson and Dave Anthony of the West Wing thing we're going to do a collab with those guys We'll have a crossover episode on that in which the three of us are going to do a deep dive into Mayor Pete. Oh, uh, uh, my invitation got lost in the mail. That's okay, guys. That's that's okay, Josh. That's okay, Dave. I, I was washing my hair that night anyway. <laughs> but since we're talking about the Patreon, we should take this opportunity to mention a few of the other things on there. What else have we got on the Patreon, Will? Oh, gosh. Uh, hang on. Let me just put on my pitch man hat. Okay, it's on uh, the last episode. We did a, We did a kind of lightning round, folks. 
Talks, talking about uh, some new and exciting movies that we'd seen. Uh, well, not all new movies. You talked about The Founder with Michael Keaton, uh, an example of pure ideology in film. I brought to the table Last Night in Soho, and we talked a little bit of Bergman Island as well. And then before that, there was a conversation between Luke and Robert Fitzpatrick, a conversation between Luke and uh, the filmmaker Alex Gibney and the journalist David Sirota. Yeah, that's right. We talked about their new podcast series, Meltdown. An episode on Jurassic Park, folks. You guys heard of that movie, Jurassic Park? So just a little taste of uh, the eclectic mix of content you can find if you subscribe at the Al Gore level at patreon.com slash Michael and us. You'll find one extra episode a week, but also all kinds of extra goodies, bonus content, interviews that I do for Jacobin, all kinds of other good stuff. So if you enjoy the free episodes and we're unaware we have a Patreon, uh, check us out there. Boy, that was fun. That was like when Jack Benny used to seamlessly transition into an ad for Lucky Strike on the radio. Uh, <laughs> anyway, what you're saying about the Mayor Pete documentary, you know, we've watched so many documentaries like that, so many kind of like either fly on the wall or hagiographic talking head documentaries about various mediocre political figures. You know, we did one on Mitt Romney that was a, sounds more like the Mayor Pete one. That was kind of a fly on the wall one. And we did one, obviously, about John McCain. Running with Beto was another one. Oh, yeah, of course. Perfect example. And what I've read about this Mayor Pete documentary, understand, folks, that I live in an echo chamber. I only read things that I agree with. But <laughs> a lot of articles make the case that, like, the, the documentary is kind of trying to, it's trying to do this thing to Mayor Pete. But he himself is kind of so uninspiring a figure and so sort of entitled a figure that it, it doesn't quite work. And I love that about all these documentaries, that Mitt Romney one that we watched, or actually, no, the, the, the Beto one is an even better example. I mean, that was a that was a movie by Crooked Media, could not have been more in the tank for this guy. And yet when it ended, it just could not help giving the impression of this guy who was using this race as a stepping stone for something else. It's amazing. You can take the raw materials of all these films and essentially create your own film out of it. You can create your own narrative with what they've provided that is better than the one that the filmmakers are selling you. Yeah, and I mean, in defense of the filmmakers, it's very hard to make uh, these subjects interesting. And the crime of this kind of movie is that they never feel any need to make any case for why, you know, Beto O'Rourke, Pete Buttigieg, Mitt Romney, the Mitt film, which I think was on Netflix, it might have been a Netflix original, I don't remember, was exactly the same. It always seems like whether explicitly or not, the people who make this type of movie feel like uh, politicians are these kind of endlessly besieged figures, you know, who carry this great burden and are always subject to all these awful polemics and all this scrutiny about their personal lives, etc. So these movies always seem to be uh, concerned with trying to humanize their subjects and trying to say, hey, look, they're not so bad after all. They're just like you and me. They have problems. They have partners. They're uncomfortable in the spotlight. They have regular human foibles, etc., etc. What they never seem to have is actual politics. <laughs> and that's what's so incredible. I mean, the prose version of this, of course, was that uh, Vanity Fair profile, kind of 8,000 words, I think it was, uh, about Beto O'Rourke that was published, I think, just in time for his presidential launch. And which, again, made absolutely no case as to why Beto O'Rourke should be president, but was full of passages about how, you know, he had a bookshelf with presidential biographies arranged in chronological order, you know, which was supposed to tell us that he thought a lot about, you know, the gravity of the office he was seeking. But also that he 
was a big fan of Star Wars. So, you know, he had, a, he, had a, he had a bit of a geek side, too. Yeah, I mean, some of the passages in that piece about how he was quintessentially Gen X because he was raised on punk and Star Wars and thus had a healthy skepticism about authority. <laughs> but this is what you have to do when you take up these subjects because there really is no there there. You know, in one way or another, most politicians like this, I mean, certainly harder for Romney to do this because he's an ultra wealthy political scion. But certainly, you know, with the Beto and the Pete films, they all offer us this kind of hollow version of these outsider figures who are setting out to make history. They're setting out to uh, go to Washington to, to shake things up. They're renegades. They're rebellious outsiders who bring something new, et cetera, et cetera. And no matter how much you try to pad that out, it can never actually substitute for a substantive political vision. Now, I'm generalizing a lot here, but I really think this style of politician uh, and this style of politics, this style that is intensely focused on, you know, the personal stories and, and you know, narrative arcs and personal attributes of individual political figures, I really think in a big way, it is the product, one of the products of the neoliberal era. Now, of course, personality politics uh, existed before the 1980s, but I would argue that the emphasis on personality in mainstream political discourse and in kind of the generalized popular conception of politics has been really ratcheted up over the past few decades. Now, there's a lot of reasons why that might be the case, but I think one of them, I mean, particularly in the United States, is that the two parties, uh, in a whole bunch of ways, moved much closer together. You know, when on all kinds of big questions, the leaderships of both major parties basically accept the Reaganite consensus. And the Republican project is simply to intensify uh, and make more brutal that consensus. And the Democrats' mission is to basically uphold it and maybe try to humanize it a bit more. When that happens, politics, frankly, becomes a lot more boring. You know, there's a sense in which the stakes of national politics, democratic politics, in a small d sense, are dramatically lowered. And the thing is, as long as politics retain the institutional liturgy of democracy, as long as there are still going to be elections and people are occasionally going to have to go and try to rally popular support for candidates and parties, you have to find the democratic energy somewhere. You know, mass politics needs a kind of libidinal dimension. You can't just run on being a bloodless technocrat, even if politically and for all intents and purposes, you are a bloodless technocrat. Somebody who I think understood this better than any U.S. politician, better than even Bill Clinton, was Barack Obama, who is, you know, the most gifted political storyteller of the 21st century, bar none. Somebody who is incredibly gifted at using his own autobiography, his own kind of self-mythology as a scaffold for, it's very hollow and ethereal, but at the same time, very compelling, what you know seemed like a very compelling political vision. And all of these people, whether it's, you know, Beto or Pete, whether it's the kinds of people, you know, anonymously cited in that Washington Post article about how Kamala Harris and Pete Buttigieg are the future of the Democratic Party, all of them, are all trying to copy what Obama did. And in a different kind of way, that's what the filmmakers behind this sort of candidate documentary, campaign trail documentary, are all trying to do. They're trying to fill the massive void created by the neoliberal consensus and the political mainstream's uh, surrender to it. They're trying to fill it with something. And the most obvious thing you can fill it with is personality. None of which, of course, can really alter the fact that most of these personalities are thoroughly conventional. You rarely get films about politicians that are actually interesting, though I guess that 
that film knocked down the house was a recent exception to that, although I think it's very much the exception rather than the rule. Instead, you get campaigns and then later films about them that are just constantly in the business of trying to make exciting subjects that are totally uninteresting and totally unexciting, but which, uh, I guess, if nothing else, keep podcasts like ours in business. Anyway, I do agree with you that the future Dem prospects, at least for the next two election cycles, look pretty bleak, which is why I think Hillary should run again. I think she could win. Well, I've said it before on the show, but I've known Will for many years, and even I'm unable to discern the layers of irony behind what he just said, so maybe we should move on to this week's film. (laughs) I guess I'm not sure either, but hey, if it's (laughs) Hillary versus Pete versus Kamala Harris, uh, that starts to become an interesting race to me. (laughs) Anyway, on to the film, folks. By far, the greatest picture of filmdom's top director, three-time winner of the coveted Academy Award, the most timely, the most vital, the most significant picture ever to come out of Hollywood. A homespun boy and a hard-boiled, worldly-wise girl in a picture carved out of the everyday lives of everyday Americans with those inimitable Capra overtones of drama, laughter and romance, plus the finest supporting cast ever assembled. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Uh, Incredible it took us this long. This really is the ultimate American political film. This is the one upon which, forget American political film, the ultimate American political document. You know, it's up there with the Declaration of Independence. This is one of the foundational texts. And, you know, watching it today, or revisiting it today for the first time in probably 15 years since I last saw it. I mean, it's got these archetypes that people are still consciously or unconsciously following in. I mean, I haven't seen this Mayor Pete documentary, but I'm sure it really positions him as a kind of Mr. Smith archetype, doesn't it? Very much so. I mean, I think in in many ways, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is telling a kind of er political story. And because of the cultural influence it uh, exerts, because of its iconic status, it probably has played a significant role in, if not creating that story, certainly popularizing it. But yeah, I mean, when you look at, you know, most U.S. presidents over the past, you know, five or six decades, they've almost all in one way or another tried to embody some version of the Mr. Smith Goes to Washington story. Everybody except possibly Hillary Clinton has run as a sort of outsider figure in some way. Oh, and I I guess Joe Biden also is an exception to that. But almost everybody from Bill Clinton to Barack Obama to Jimmy Carter, to Ronald Reagan. They've all been somebody who's coming in and, and, you know, just a simple person coming in to shake up the establishment. The thing is, you know, even Joe Biden, who, you know, of course, by the time he'd become president, he'd been, you know, a a Washington machine politician, creature of the beltway for, you know, going on half a century. But even Joe Biden has always had this image as, you know, he's the hard scrabble Scranton guy that, you know, rides the Amtrak. You know, he's always had this kind of aw shucks demeanor. I think in many ways, uh, it's very similar. Now, before we get into the details of the film, I want to say something about my own history with it, or rather my own lack of history with it. I'd never seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington until this week. And so it's one of those films that I only knew by reputation. 
I knew about it in broad strokes. I knew it was a story in which Jimmy Stewart plays the American common man, you know, coming into Washington and bringing the earthy patriotic wisdom of the hinterland into the United States Senate. And for that reason, I felt very much like it was going to be the type of film that we've called on this podcast, uh, the politics, what a concept type of movie. Now, longtime listeners will be exhausted uh, to hear us rehash this, but we have gotten thousands of new listeners over the past six months or a year, so we should probably go over the politics, what a concept genre uh, very quickly. How would you define it, Will? Boy, I mean, the, the phrase politics, what a concept itself does a good job describing it, but I guess they are films that are overwhelmed by the glory of politics in and of itself. Movies that do not consciously seek to embody any ideology beyond that. They are just enthralled to the backroom boys who roll up their sleeves and get the job done. They are enthralled to the election workers who are staffing the polling stations. They're enthralled to the journalists who ride on the bus and have to eat the shitty egg and cheese sandwiches that are wrapped up in the in the saran wrap because that's that's the dirty business of politics. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think the key phrase there was enthrall. You know, to me, the the hallmark of the politics, what a concept genre is a totally credulous and uncritical reverence for politics as such and for political institutions as such. So examples of movies like this would be the Kevin Costner joint swing vote in which an everyman played by Costner himself, you know, some election shenanigans happen and he's got basically one vote to decide the presidential election. He gets to decide who's going to be president because it's down to one vote in one county and his uh, vote was uh, not counted properly or wasn't counted or something like that. And the entire movie uh, is structured around Kevin Costner's supposed dilemma. Who's he going to vote for? And would you believe it? We never actually find out the decision Kevin Costner makes. We never find out anything about the Democrat or the Republican candidate that he's choosing between because the message of the film is that what matters is uh, not the destination, it's the journey. Both of these guys are honorable men, the Democrat and the Republican, and what matters is the sanctity of Kevin Costner's vote, not even why he's casting it or, you know, for what purpose or with what ultimate outcome in mind. Well, my favorite example of the genre is probably Journeys with George, a documentary by Alexandra Pelosi, one of our favorite filmmakers around here, uh, the <laughs> the daughter of Nancy Pelosi. She makes she specializes in these horrible documentaries that she makes for <laughs> HBO, and, and this one one saw her her would you believe it nancy pelosi's daughter a died in the wool liberal folks she was on george w bush's 2000 <laughs> campaign tour bus following him around and you know we we saw a more human side of george w bush she and finds out he's actually kind of a nice guy yeah he's not that bad i mean we don't hear anything about his campaign spreading pamphlets talking about john mccain's black baby or anything like we don't, that we, we don't hear about all the people that he executed while governor of texas no, but but he he's kind of he's kind of razzing on her a little bit for flirting with that other journalist, you know. And would you believe it? Nancy Pelosi's daughter, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, has to eat the shitty sandwich that they give to the journalists on the bus. I mean, come on, 
on, folks. That's that's getting down into the muck of politics. So again, just a film where, you know, there is no there there. So to turn back to uh, the movie we watched this week, this is very much the kind of thing I expected from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington based on its reputation. And which it seemed to be delivering for the first third. You got Jimmy Stewart looking at that uh, Lincoln Memorial and just, just so overwhelmed by the power of the Lincoln Memorial. For the first third of this movie, it did kind of seem like it was that sort of film. But I have to say, I was quite pleasantly surprised by where this movie ended up. This is ultimately a film about how American politics are corrupt. Uh, They're dominated by party machines. There are, of course, you know, holes in its critique. I mean, it's not a it's not exactly a left wing movie, but I would call it small p populist. It's a movie which portrays the D.C. political establishment as out of touch, as anti-democratic. It doesn't, as I said, have a specific critique of these institutions, or if it does, it's 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 rather vague. But it very much shows the U.S. government as a corrupt entity that operates separately from the people it's supposed to represent. The main antagonist in the film, who's this party boss, is really a classic plutocrat. He has business concerns. He controls the media in the unnamed, uh, I guess, Midwestern state. It's not clear exactly to me whether he is an actual member of a party or if party boss is sort of more of a shorthand, but basically he's a stand-in for political corruption. Not only does he control the media in the unnamed Midwestern state from which Jimmy Stewart's character descends, but he also seems to control local law enforcement as well. He basically buys politicians by offering them favors. While I think a straightforwardly left-wing version of this Frank Capra film might go a little (laughs) bit differently, it still very much confounded my expectations. And I do think that it has, in many ways, a good message. And one that I was not expecting, given, as you said, the first third of the film, which, you know, shows Jimmy Stewart doing his classic, you know, Jimmy Stewart, aw shucks demeanor and saying gee whiz about everything from, you know, Abraham Lincoln to, you know, the the DC train station. It did kind of seem like one of those films that was made going to be about uh, how cool Washington is and how we should have reverence for everything in it. But it's not that kind of film at all. Yeah. And also just a really fucking entertaining movie, you know, great cast moves like lightning. The tension that's built in the last third is incredible. I mean, there's a reason that Frank Capra is commonly regarded as the Frank Capra of film directors. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a, it's 129 minutes long. And by the end, all your defenses are, have finally been worn down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this is one of those movies where uh, Will was kind of sardonically DMing me through the first 20 minutes. <laughs> and then I could tell that he was enjoying the film because he stopped sending DMs. <laughs> That's usually the dead giveaway. Uh, we've been a lo- we've been doing the podcast long enough that I know his habits at this point. But anyway, well, why don't we run through the plot of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington for those who haven't seen it? Well, the film begins shortly after the death of a U.S. senator in this unnamed Midwestern every state. The governor of the state, who's really just a political stooge for this big boss, uh, he must appoint a replacement, and he's under great pressure from the higher-ups to pick a stooge, someone who will simply follow orders, vote the way that he's told. However, when he floats the preferred candidate, 
there is immediate backlash. The people see right through this. They say, Horace Miller, he's a party man. We don't, we don't want him. Yeah, and it's unclear exactly what's happening here because the people who kind of revolt against this suggestion belong to some kind of citizens committee, but it's not really clear, you know, I think I think the film might call it a popular committee. It's not really clear what this is, whether it's, you know, kind of the, the governing body of uh, whichever party this is in whichever state it is or what. But basically, uh, it's a stand-in for, you know, the people. I think the movie is uncertain how it feels about the people or uncertain how it feels about the, the people's ability to see through the political machine. You know, Mr. Smith is constantly shown as somebody who, like, really speaks for the people and who, when he has a chance to speak, has great popular support. And there are times, like in that early scene, where the people are shown to be much savvier and much more astute than the politicians give them credit for. But then also the movie sort of suggests that when you buy the media, you can also sway the people very easily. Well, that's right. And I actually like that about this movie, because I think the manufacture of consent is something that's very real. And, you know, in many ways, that type of movie that we were just talking about before we started talking about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is an example of that. You know, there's a whole vast apparatus, media and culture wise, which is designed to represent the kinds of things that go on in an imperial sense center of power like Washington, D.C. as something other than what they are. I think intuitively a lot of people, whether they pay attention to politics on a day-to-day basis or not, kind of know that that's bullshit. But often it feels like there's not much you can do except sort of passively go along with it. And a lot of people who decide to become intense partisans for, you know, particular politicians or one of the two major parties basically take, you know, the official manufactured narrative of their own side and then they make that their whole political identity. And frankly, if that's the only thing that you've known, or that's the only thing available to you, it can be hard to do anything else. But so in the movie, our eponymous Mr. Smith uh, is actually very astonished when he gets to Washington to find out how it actually works. And I really like that as a framing device, because I think in many ways, it's quite close to the truth. Now, who is Mr. Smith, you may be wondering? He is Jefferson Smith, played by James Stewart. And he ends up being the person who is actually appointed senator after this backlash. Yeah, he is Jefferson Washington John Quincy Adams Smith. He's a political neophyte. He's the head of the Boy Rangers, which is, you know, essentially a Boy Scout kind of organization. And he's a real Boy Scout himself. He sees Washington entirely at face value. He's excited to get there and make some change. Now, this is a film of big, broad archetypes. And one of them is Senator Joseph Payne, played by Claude Rains. He's the other senator representing Mr. Smith's state. A veteran politician, kind of like Bullworth. Or uh, John McCain, you know, a, a good man, a good man who once had principles, but who has over time become a cog in a corrupt system. Yeah, so we learn that also that he's an old friend of Jeff Smith's dad. And uh, Jeff Smith's dad once fought against a mining syndicate and was actually murdered for it. It's not really clear what this fight was. And the film, I think, passes over this detail rather quickly. But the takeaway we're supposed to have is that, you know, in Jeff Smith's family, there's this history of kind of uh, struggle against powerful institutions in defense of lost causes. Another great archetype 
is Mr. Smith's secretary, Clarissa, played by Jean Arthur, who was the secretary to his deceased predecessor. And she is sort of representative also of the people, but a particular perspective of the people. She's somebody who's been in Washington for a while, has seen it all, has grown weary and cynical, and knows nothing can or ever will be done in this system. When Mr. Smith is uh, essentially told to write a bill, like as a make work project, you know, we need something for this guy to do. Why not? Why not write a bill? She explains to him the many reasons why this bill will probably never be passed. And in his Jimmy Stewart way, he says, well, shucks, we better get started then. And her gradual renewal of faith in the process of politics, you know, she she's kind of our surrogate on screen. You know, Mr. Smith isn't really our surrogate. She is. Yeah, she's the one who really understands how things actually work throughout the whole movie. You know, Jimmy Stewart's character learns about that gradually throughout the course of the film. But there's this hilarious scene where you see Mr. Smith's first press conference as a United States senator. And he's asked about, you know, what, what ideas, what big ideas he's bringing to Washington. And this moment... Uh, you know, marked one of the moments in roughly the first third of the film where I thought, oh boy, it's it's one of those movies. It's a politics, what a concept movie. Because Mr. Smith's idea is a national camp for young boys, which is, it's going to uh, teach them how to survive in nature. I don't know, make fires, that kind of thing. And it's going to bring together people from all walks of life, young boys from all walks of life. And guess what, folks? It's going to be deficit neutral, (laughs) which is a detail that Mr. Smith is very excited to share. And now when he comes to propose this bill, the senators, they laugh at him. They say, look at this idiot coming and proposing a bill on the floor of the fucking Senate. What a moron. What a rube. And it was at this moment when I thought... I don't know about this movie. I'm not quite sure if this movie is going to redeem itself. Yeah, so it it seems like, if you haven't seen this movie before, that this is what the stakes are going to be. It's like, for years, people have been doing the bad politics, but now along comes a man who wants to do the good politics, wants to pass a good thing. Yeah, can can the United States Senate still pass a transformative bill, like one that creates a small youth camp in a single Midwestern state? Or will the powers that be step in to shoot it down? I'll tell you another thing that made me very anxious about this scene the case that mr smith makes for this boys camp is identical to one that pete Buttigieg made in 2019 about the need for a national service program okay so pete Buttigieg had this plan that was called a new call to service and you know basically was gonna create quote a pathway towards a universal national expectation of service for all four million high school graduates every year As a proposal in and of itself, that's not very interesting. What interested me when I wrote about it at the time was the rationale offered for it, okay? So on uh, Pete Buttigieg's campaign website, the whole thing was pitched as a remedy for kind of weakening social cohesion and polarization. The rationale was, in the great unwinding of American civic society underway, and at a time when Americans are experiencing record low trust in fellow citizens and Americans' institutions, few, if any, single policy solutions carry the promise of democratic renewal more than national service. At this moment, when social media and deepening polarization have put us into distinctive bubbles, national service is that much more essential to fashioning a common character. 
So I thought this was absolutely incredible because I love that the liberal answer to, you know, declining social cohesion, you know, it's not big universal programs. It's not economic inequality. It's not everybody rich or poor getting to use the same health insurance or something like that. Uh, It's a national service program where young people get together uh, and I don't know, they learn about Thomas Jefferson or something and, uh, you know, they pave a road or, or something like that. And Mr. Smith in this movie makes exactly the same case for his boy. So that's what I thought was going to be the stakes of this movie, except it turns out that after Act One, this becomes a straightforward tale of political corruption and kind of the people fighting against it, thankfully. But yes, as Mr. Smith is delivering this very well-received speech, I mean, it goes from the senators jeering him to the gallery, which is all full of little children who would presumably go to this camp, just cheering him on. Uh, And even the senators, even their like cold hearts start to be melted a little bit listening, listening to this speech. The powers that be realize they have a problem here because the land where this campsite is to be built, listen, I'm not going to get into the details of this, but folks, what you need to know is that there is graft and corruption connected to this land. There is some Warren G. Harding shit happening with this land. Yeah, there's some kind of appropriations for a hydroelectric project or something, a dam, something like that, uh, that the political boss, who's the main antagonist in the film, is is tied up in, and he, he wants to see this dam built the people's will be damned. Uh, And this is actually the original reason why he wanted to appoint, you know, some hack instead of a a reformer or, you know, an average citizen uh, to fill this vacant Senate seat because... He wants to make this dam project happen, presumably to, you know, line his own pockets or as a piece of political patronage or something like that. The details are not important. So what happens next is the party boss, the oligarch, the Murdochian figure, launches an all-hands-on-deck smear campaign against Mr. Smith rallies his pet politicians and his entire media apparatus to project the story that in fact this land is owned by Mr. Smith himself and that he stands to benefit from the federal loan that will build this campsite. The last act of the film sees Mr. Smith heroically attempting to defend himself, his character, and his bill on the floor of the Senate by launching a filibuster against the bill that would oust him from the Senate. As he continues this filibuster, the party boss's media apparatus is at fever pitch, and whether or not he remains in the Senate will depend entirely on the conscience of Senator Payne, the Claude Rains character, who has been recruited into this effort to smear Mr. Smith but feels the pangs of conscience uh, tugging at him. Yeah, and the Senator Payne character is quite interesting because, of course, Jimmy Stewart comes to Washington admiring him a great deal, thinking that he's this really principled guy. And uh, it's clear that in their home state, he has this this fantastic reputation. He's a hugely popular figure. But in uh, what I think is one of the best monologues of the film, uh, Senator Payne basically confesses to the original sin that befalls a lot of people who are elected to powerful political offices. Well, ever talk with Taylor? He said he'd been telling you what to do for 20 years. I call him a liar. Listen, son, come over here and sit down, will you? I don't feel like sitting down. Well, I know how you feel, Jeff. I was hoping you'd be spared all this. I was hoping that you'd see the sights, absorb a lot of history, and go back to your boys. Now, you've been living in a boy's world, Jeff, and for heaven's sake, stay there. This is a man's world. It's a brutal world, Jeff, and you've no place in it. You'll only get hurt. 
Now take my advice, forget Taylor and what he said. Forget you ever heard of the Willet Creek Dam. But you still haven't answered me, sir. Can a man like Taylor tell you and those other men what to do? Now, listen, Jeff, please. And, and try to understand. I know it's tough to run head on into facts, but well, as I said, this is a man's world, Jeff, and you've got to check your ideals outside the door like you do your rubbers. Now, 30 years ago, I had your ideals. I was you. I had to make the same decision you were asked to make today. And I made it. I compromised. Yes. So that all those years I could sit in that Senate and serve the people in a thousand honest ways. You've got to face facts, Jeff. I've served our state well, haven't I? We have the lowest unemployment and the highest federal grants. But, well, I've had to compromise. I've had to play ball. You can't count on people voting. Half the time, they don't vote anyway. That's how states and empires have been built since time began. Don't you understand? Now, of course, you know, a monologue like this is, is incredibly sort of broad and incredibly vague. But I do think it captures something uh, very, very real. The reason that, that a political system like the United States is, is so hopelessly corrupt, of course, isn't just because of the individual characters. You know, it's not the sum total, the cumulative total of the personal characters of all of the people occupying the House, Senate, White House, etc. But it is very much the case that a lot of people do make some version of this decision, you know, often very early in their political careers. And what I like about Senator Payne's monologue is it shows how easy it probably is to talk yourself uh, into making this kind of decision. Politics are the art of the possible, after all. You get something, you might get a promise that, you know, you're never going to face a primary. You might have the promise of, you know, a lucrative job after you leave. And hey, it could it could be someone worse in that seat, too. That's right. We should all be happy Joe Manchin represent is this United States <laughs> Senator for West Virginia. What, folks, you want a Republican there? At least he's got a D next to his name. But, you know, in addition to all the personal stuff, of course, political patronage is often such that, you know, you bribe a lawmaker by saying, hey, well, don't you want like that military base built in your home state? Don't you want appropriations for infrastructure? Whatever, you know, whatever the thing. And so that makes it very easy for people to tell themselves, well, hey, look, this is a grubby process. Hopefully not too many people get to see how the sausage is made. But at the end of the day, look at all this great stuff that I got for my state or my district or my country or whatever. That's how a lot of people rationalize this kind of thing. And actually, I was having a conversation recently with a friend of mine who's run for public office several times and had a few near miss. And she told me a story uh, that it's I, Hillary Clinton, folks. No, it'll be clear it's not Hillary. It's very much not Hillary Clinton when I tell you when you hear what I'm about to say next. Hillary Clinton, of course, is my close personal friend, but she wasn't the person I was talking to. No, my friend recently told me about a time that, uh, let's say, a major political party offered her not only an unopposed run in a safe seat somewhere, but also said, uh, hey, you'll be a shoe in for a cabinet position. And the powerful political figure who made this offer was absolutely flabbergasted when she said no. And he apparently said something to the effect of, I really don't deal with a lot of people like you. <laughs> and, you know, you can see how if, if you're faced with an offer like that, I mean, it's pretty, it would be pretty easy to talk yourself into it, wouldn't it? 
I mean, in addition to all the, you know, personal prestige and things like that, you know, the status that comes with holding elected office, holding public office, uh, it'd be very easy to tell yourself, well, hey, I mean, it's better to have a seat at the table than to not have a seat at the table. Better me than someone else, et cetera, et cetera. And again, of course, there are, you know, deep systemic reasons why political institutions and liberal democracies are uh, deeply unrepresentative, uh, deeply corrupt in many ways, alienated from the public at large, et cetera reasons which have nothing or have very little to do with kind of the individual characters of the politicians holding elected office. But I still think that what's captured in Senator Payne's monologue very much does represent a kind of generalizable story about the types of compromises and the types of rationales that a lot of people make when they enter politics uh, through kind of the mainstream ways and kind of the traditional ways that people do that. How did you like the penultimate scene or the emotional climax of the film when after God, I don't know, 20 hours, however many hours of filibustering on the Senate floor, an exhausted Mr. Smith is confronted with buckets and buckets full of angry hate mail from people who have consumed the party boss's media. And just when it looks like he's about to, he says, no, it's the lost causes that are worth fighting for. I'm going to I'm going to keep saying the truth and I'm going to keep saying the truth until it kills me. All you people don't know about lost causes. Mr. Payne does. He said once they were the only causes worth fighting for. And he fought for them once. For the only reason any man ever fights for them. Because of just one plain, simple rule. Love thy neighbor. And in this world today full of hatred, a man who knows that one rule has a great trust. You know that rule, Mr. Payne. And I loved you for it just as my father did. And you know that you fight for the lost causes harder than for any others. Yes, you even die for them. Like a man we both knew, Mr. Payne. You think I'm licked. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause. Even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. I gotta say, I found this scene intensely moving. Overwhelming. Yeah, as you said, (laughs) by this point in the movie, I mean, it's really worn down your defenses. Whatever kind of layers of ironic remove you've erected to, you know, protect your emotions in our crumbling world... They've been stripped away and you just kind of have an earnest reaction to what is a very moving and I think also very, you know, exciting and very well shot and and dramatic scene. There's a lot of good filmmaking to get us to this point. The way that he amps up the pace in the last third of the film and just Stewart's performance, which at this point has just like crescendoed into such a fury. But also, I mean, the scene for all its hysterics, for all its intense dramatics, communicates something I think genuinely real. I mean, the Jimmy Stewart character is effectively saying, here I stand, I can do no other. You know, I'm going to stand on this matter of principle and I'm not going to go along with something false and, and fraudulent and corrupt because I'm here to represent the people from my state. 
And there is a kind of simple power uh, to that as a sentiment. Now, there's not much more to say about the plot of this movie. I mean, Jimmy Stewart finally faints out of exhaustion because he's been filibustering for, you know, 24 hours or whatever it is. And Senator Payne goes full Bullworth. Yeah, Senator Payne uh, has a very bad moment and runs out of the Senate chamber to try to shoot himself Uh, in the head and, you know, fails because he's stopped by people around him. But he's totally consumed by guilt that he went along with this scene. And he runs back into the Senate chamber, belts out the whole story, and he says, I'm not worthy to to serve here, you know, expel me. And then, you know, the last thing we see is uh, the Senate speaker looking slightly amused. Uh, You know, he kind of makes a perfunctory effort to reestablish order and then just kind of, uh, you know, folds his arms back and and watches the chaos unfold. But so the film ultimately ends on a note of hope. Uh, And this is I think, again, something that differentiates it from so many movies that we watched on this podcast, because I have to say, even when the film kind of started to take a, a turn for the better after act one, I did wonder if Jimmy Stewart's character, you know, if his arc wasn't going to crescendo uh, with him making some sort of noble compromise or if some kind of bipartisan, you know, deal or something was going to be uh, hammered out. There's always a possibility in this type of movie that the message is going to be about how you know, the true idealist is the person who's willing to suffocate their idealism just a little bit in order to get things done. Unfortunately, that's not how the movie ultimately ends. Now, the final thing which made me like this movie was reading up a little bit on how it was received when it debuted in 1939. So apparently its premiere was at Constitutional Hall in Washington, D.C., October 17th, uh, 1939. This is a venue whose address is quite literally 1776 D Street Northwest, very near the White House. The premiere of the film was sponsored by the National Press Club. There were thousands of guests, including uh, almost half of the United States Senate. And the film was, by most accounts, received terribly. There's a bit of a dispute in the historical literature about exactly what happened on the night of the premiere. Capra says in his autobiography that some senators actually angrily stormed out, that kind of thing. It's not uh, exactly clear if that happened. There's allegations that some senators yelled at the screen and that kind of thing. But regardless of the specific details of that night in 1939, the political class in D.C. seems to have responded to this movie very, very negatively. The Democratic Senate majority leader at the time was a guy by the name of Albin Barkley. Uh, who was a politician from Kentucky and uh, later vice president. He called the movie silly and stupid. He said he complained that it makes the Senate look like a bunch of crooks. He called it a grotesque distortion, as grotesque as anything I've ever seen. Imagine the vice president of the United States winking at a pretty girl in the gallery in order to encourage a filibuster. Imagine such a thing. Now, there was a, a journalist at the time by the name of Pete Harrison who wrote for a kind of film journal called Harrison's Reports. Uh, and he argued that the Senate should pass a bill which would allow people who owned movie theaters to refuse to show a film like this. Films that were, quote, not in the best interest of the country. So that legislation didn't pass. That's funny. I mean, presumably a movie theater owner could refuse to show a movie. Oh, actually, maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe since this was before the Paramount decree, I guess studios at this time still owned their own movie theaters. I think that's right. I think that's my sense of it. Now, there were other vociferous critics of Mr. Smith goes to Washington in the political sphere. Uh, There was a guy by the name of Joseph Patrick Kennedy Sr. And you'll never guess which clan uh, he hailed from. Uh, But he was at the time the uh, 
uh, American ambassador to Britain. He wrote a letter to Capra and to Columbia, the studio behind the film, complaining that it would damage America's prestige in Europe. Now, interestingly, it was not just American authorities and the American political class uh, who were frightened and revolted and disgusted by this movie. Uh, It was banned in Nazi Germany. It was banned in Italy. It was banned in Spain under Franco. It wasn't released in in the Soviet Union until 1950. It was released there under the title uh, The Senator. I'm not quite sure where to place this detail, but I think it's interesting. When the Nazis occupied uh, the whole of France in 1942, there was a ban that was imposed on, uh, I guess, all films from the United States. But before the ban went into effect, many theaters showed Mr. Smith Goes to Washington as the last movie before the ban. And apparently there was one theater in Paris that screened it nonstop for a full month uh, after the ban was announced and before it went into effect. So it's a little funny to watch this movie in 2021 and think about it as something deeply transgressive that, you know, was worthy of censorship in in Franco's Spain and Hitler's Germany, etc. But learning these details certainly made me like it more. In addition to being, you know, very well filmed and well acted, it was in many ways uh, very brave for the people behind this film to be willing to represent Washington, D.C. as so uniformly corrupt. It seems to me that what's been remembered about it is simply just the broad idea of an outsider coming into Washington to shake things up. The, the message about political corruption, which though a little bit vague, is in many ways quite specific. The film's all about unelected bagmen, you know, using patronage and control of the media and other things, control of law enforcement to discipline the people and to control politicians. All of that stuff, it seems, I think, has, has largely been forgotten. By the way, you'll be relieved to know that Capra himself was a conservative Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Which is interesting because one of the things I was concerned about as I started watching this movie, and which I guess I'm less concerned about now, but which I think is still a factor, is the fact that it is a kind of one-size-fits-all political parable. You could be a conservative Republican or a left-wing Democrat and look at this movie, and that party boss can be, you know, Rupert Murdoch, or he can be George Soros if you want him to be. And as you pointed out, you know, Frank Capra was actually someone who opposed the New Deal. He seems to have had a kind of late-in-life conversion to pacifism. He spoke out against the Vietnam War, but he was a conservatively inclined member of the Republican Party. So I guess in conclusion, I mean, I think we still we still could use a, a left-wing version of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. While I do really like this movie, and I think much about it and its message are commendable, the very thing that makes it kind of an er-political text, and something that's so easy to find sympathetic, is that everything about it is so generalizable. The universal quality of Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is its greatest strength, but is also ultimately its greatest weakness as well. Woo. You sure gotta climb a lot of steps to get to this Capitol building here in Washington. Well, I wonder who that sad little scrap of paper is. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I'm sitting here on Capitol Hill. Well, it's a long, long journey to the Capitol City. It's a long, long wait while I'm sitting in committee. But I know I'll be a law someday, at least I hope and pray that I will. But today I am still just a bill. Gee, Bill, you certainly have a lot of patience and courage. Well, I got this far. When I started, I wasn't even a bill. I was just an idea. 
some folks back home decided they wanted a law passed, so they called their local congressman, and he said, you're right, there ought to be a law. Then he sat down and wrote me out and introduced me to Congress, and I became a bill. And I'll remain a bill until they decide to make me a law. I'm just a bill. Yes, I'm only a bill. And I got as far as Capitol Hill. Well, now I'm stuck in committee and I'll sit here and wait while a few key congressmen discuss and debate whether they should let me be alone. I hope and pray that they will, but today I am still just a bill. Listen to those congressmen arguing. Is all that discussion and debate about you? Yeah, I'm one of the lucky ones. Most bills never even get this far. I hope they decide to report on me favorably, otherwise I may die. Die? Yeah, die in committee. Oh, but it looks like I'm going to live. Now I go to the House of Representatives and they vote on me. If they vote yes, what happens? Then I go to the Senate and the whole thing starts all over again. Oh, no. Oh, yes. I'm just a bill, yes, I'm only a bill, and if they vote for me on Capitol Hill, well, then I'm off to the White House where I'll wait in a line with a lot of other bills for the president to sign, and if he signs me, then I'll be along. I hope and pray that he will, but today I am still just a bill. You mean even if the whole Congress says you should be a law, the president can still say no? Yes, that's called a veto. If the president vetoes me, I have to go back to Congress and they vote on me again, and by that time you're so By old, that time, it's very unlikely that you become a law. It's not easy to become a law, is it? No, but how I hope and pray that I will, but today I am still just a bill. He signed your bill, now you're a law. Oh, yes! <laughs> 